1: Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: to be cheerful with Ed
5: Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
4: Greetings, pod pickers. It's Tony Blackburn here. welcoming you to the Reasons to be Cheerful Top Ten Ideas of the Year.
6: What's going up? What's going down? And what's a non-mover? Handing over to your esteemed
4: hosts, it's Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Take it away. Happy New Year, Happy nearly. Me. Happy New Year, nearly. Uh, here we are, December the. Thirtieth slash
7: gen- early January, probably. I mean, we we are giving away the fact that every podcast you listen to, every radio show you listen to, every TV show you watch, they did it so
4: far in advance that you kind of lose track. of Not preview on New Year's Eve on Radio Five Live. For this those, is if it's be- if you're before ten o'clock or well one a.m. on New Year's Day, you can hear Jeff Lloyd on Five Live.
7: Yeah, it's my hootenanny. <laughs> yeah yes um, so here we are and, and as ever as is the reason yeah. to Be Cheerful tradition yeah. we are counting down our top 10 ideas yeah. of the year uh, he- hearing from them again and also looking at what has happened to those ideas since we originally talked about them and at number 10 it's back it's to the new future entry. Yeah, new entry they're all new entries alright I know but you've <laughs> got to play along here for a minute. Um it's uh, back to the future representing the coming generations now you may remember that we spoke to Sophie Howe, who was the world's first Future Generations Commissioner in Wales, then Laurie Leiborne Langton and Andrea Westall. Since we did this episode, founder of The Big Issue, Lord John Bird introduced a private members bill in the House of Lords in October, calling for a UK-wide Future Generations Act. And here's Sophie talking
4: about her role. Tell us, first of all, what your job is involved, what, what what it means and, and what it involves?
5: So my job
4: was created
5: through a law that was passed in the Welsh Assembly called the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And my job description as set out in law is to act as the guardian of the interests of future generations. So that's a pretty cool job description, um, I think. But my job is to make sure that the government and all of our other public institutions, so councils, health boards and so on, are are applying the law and are taking the interests of future generations. Into account. And am I right in thinking that
4: before your post was set up, there was kind of quite a lot of dialogue between generations? Is that right?
5: Yes yeah, so we held a a national conversation in Wales which engaged with over 10,000 people about the Wales we want and um a whole range of different generations so young people from the scouts and the um the earth, which is the Welsh language uh, youth movement to the women's institute and young farmers and so on all held this national conversation trying to envisage what would we want Wales to look like in the future and what sort of Wales do we want to leave behind to our children our grandchildren and they developed that conversation developed a set of national well-being goals which also took account of the UN sustainable development goals right. going
4: through at the same time and I suppose what's really interesting for our listeners is what practical impact your role has had and there are there are some notable areas of policy where you've intervened and it has had a real impact isn't that right
5: yeah. So one of the the best examples was that there'd been a proposal on the books, if you like, of the Welsh Government for about the last decade to deal with a big problem with congestion on our main motorway, the M4, around Newport by building a, a relief road. And this was interesting for a number of reasons. One, because it was the first time that Wales had got borrowing powers and they were proposing to use all of the borrowing powers on building this road so that's kind of interesting from a future generations perspective because not only is it potentially questionable whether we should be building you know investing our resources on building roads at the moment. You're also then proposing to ask future generations to pay it back because it's borrowing. But the, I guess the case that I put was that to challenge the government to demonstrate how investing that amount of money was in the interests of, of future generations, taking into account each one of our goals. So taking into account our carbon emissions targets, taking into account um, future trends and scenarios, whether we'd adequately thought about the potential impact of driverless and autonomous vehicles on congestion there, whether we talked about or they thought about uh, road taxation systems when we all go electric. So to cut a long story short, the issue went to a public inquiry. It was a decision then that needed to be made by the First Minister. The public inquiry recommended that it should go ahead, but the First Minister of Wales rejected that proposal. So that was quite a significant change in policy as a result of the legislation that we've got and I suppose the intervention of of myself as Commissioner. Uh,
4: Number 9, The bark's worse than the bite. It's it's tree distribution. Shrubtastic reasons to plant. Now, this is about the argument for planting millions of more trees. We had Emmy Murphy from Friends of the Earth, academic Rob McKenzie, and German tree campaigner Felix Finkbeiner. Uh, A few days after our episode went out in July, Ethiopia broke the world tree planting record. Norris, by planting more than 350 million trees in a single day. That's a reference to the Guinness Book of Records for those who were born after sort of 1980. Uh, I'm surprised you were allowed to watch Record Breakers. It was on BBC One. But weren't the McWherter
7: brothers politically yeah. a little... Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah.
4: Problematic. Yeah. They were. My, my mother did stage an intervention <laughs> at one point. Uh, anyway, here's the episode.
8: There's so much talk right now about uh, action on climate and the fact that we need to take uh, urgent action on climate and one of the things we as friends of the earth really pride ourselves with is the solutions that we have for people and government and trees is one of those solutions and it's just to emphasize the fact that trees are part of a package of climate action that we should be taking and it's
7: about drawing in carbon
8: yeah so drawing in carbon um, something that we call negative emissions which is drawing in carbon from the atmosphere and it also has a whole host of other benefits as well so Trees can help us provide shade, like within urban settings, um, and flooding. And that's a flood prevention measures as well. And it's great for our well-being. So there's a whole host of other benefits along with and, combating And you
4: want change. to, just to be clear about this, Friends of the Earth have an ambitious target to double the amount of tree cover in the UK from 13 to 26%, which goes beyond what the government's official advisors, the Climate Change Committee, have recommended.
8: We have to be really ambitious. We're in this age where we actually have to start urgent action now. Um, and we feel kind of the 19% that the Committee on Climate Change have kind of given, we're really keen for it to go above and beyond that. So that's why we're saying 26%. And it's also possible. So we've done some uh, illustrative scenarios on mapping and whilst there's only england focus this is possible so we're not going to be planting trees on crops so we will still have food and we can have trees as well um so there is land for that if we're kind of very clever with how we use the land um
4: and i think i'm right in saying that scotland is already at 19 yes yes. so so which is interesting now rob we are incredibly excited to hear we are giddy to hear about the sci-fi forest Tell us about the sci-fi forest, which is your forest.
2: Uh, well, um, it's the forest I have the privilege of working in. Yeah. You, you are um, the king of the sci-fi forest. <laughs> king of the jungle. Yes, King of, king of the jungle, yeah. That, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll live with that for the moment. <laughs> Although if, if there was a video link, I, um, I don't think I would quite quite match up to anyone's oh, you're uh, being too hard on yourself mental wrong. image of a king of the jungle. But um, what we're trying to do is provide some numbers to more firmly underpin um, the story that you've just had from Emmy. Tell us what
4: it is, the Sci-Fi Forest. The
2: Sci-Fi Forest is a forest um, where we have put uh, a whole load of um, plumbing into an existing mature oak woodland so that we can gently leak into that woodland um, extra carbon dioxide so that we take parts of the forest, patches of the forest, into the carbon dioxide atmosphere that the whole planet will be in by about 2050.
4: So it's modelling the future and seeing what role trees can play in absorbing carbon dioxide at, at higher levels, and significantly higher levels than we have at the moment. And what have you discovered?
2: Well, what we found very gratifyingly is that the trees so far in the first three seasons of our measurements um, are able to continue drawing down um, extra carbon dioxide when you, when you offer it to them. Uh, there, there, of course, there's a, there's a kind of a balanced diet argument here, which made us worry that um, as carbon dioxide concentrations increase and increase and increase, there'll come a point when forests just can't make any use of, of that extra resource. Of course, plants use carbon dioxide Uh, for photosynthesis. It's the the basis of of all the food chains. Um, But but they need a balanced diet. And we were worried that the forest we're looking at uh, would not be able to make use of this extra carbon dioxide. But what in fact we are finding is that it is making use of that carbon dioxide, and it's making use of it to explore what uh, extra resources it can find below
7: ground. And going up at number eight, there's no place like home, social homes that is. It's a social home revolution, the history and future of council housing. So back on that episode, we spoke to historian John Bowton and Saida Vasi and Jim O'Neill, who uh, he's served on the Shelter Housing Commission with Ed. That's one of the big things you've been up to this year. And then we saw that the Labour Party, Green Party, Lib Dems, they all uh, went big. On social house building programs in their manifestos in the election, Ed. It seems like your
4: argument has been won. Well, let's hope that this government delivers on this because I think it's. I think it is an area where we've the, the argument has been won. Not not re, not just simply by because of the Shelter Housing Commission, but just lots of the arguments about the housing crisis and the role of social housing really important. Let's hear the clip. Talk to us about your experience on the commission, why you think it's important, but also about the economics of it. By the sheer size, sorry, number of
1: new social homes we're calling for, 3.1 million 20 years, the scale of ambition that goes with that, it it, it obviously suggests right at the core the whole approach to thinking about housing in the UK has got to change. And that's what I love. And of course, for many people, and probably current policymakers and senior civil servants, like, God, that, you know, that seems a little bit big. But I think if you've got coherence around big picture things that's how you actually start to get stuff done and
4: i think it's fair to say that you and i were i mean pushing an open door but both of us were urging ambition yes during the course of the commission i think both you and i recognised that we need this that you know for an outside you know charity to be doing a report there was no point in doing something which was just sort of stuck in the weeds of government that was one of the
1: things i really liked about uh watching how you operated that we 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 clearly without talking about it privately we shared this and it was so obvious to me we had to do that otherwise it and it 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 is a risk that it'll just gather dust anyhow as with any of
4: these things and we've got to make sure it doesn't but if we
1: wouldn't have done something like this it
4: would have done but there is something also isn't there that speaks to your sort of expertise which is the sort of economic question about this and whether and you and i've discussed this about seeing council housing as a sort of asset just right. talk to us about this, this so notion we, we, of infrastructure, capital investment, and asset. So the
1: other thing that – there's two or three things that really struck me from, let's call it, 40,000 feet stuff. First of all, why is housing not regarded as an asset in the same way that uh, HS2 or Crossrail yeah. would be? doesn't really make a lot of sense. And one of the big things that I think – Shelter's got to get some supporters on and not lose the momentum, and, and some of us commissions maybe can help a little bit, It's to get the infrastructure commission that's, what, three years old.
4: Which is a government body that's looking government at infrastructure. Government body to supposedly have
1: independent analysis of what's important for Britain's infrastructure. Housing
7: is not on it. And has that had never been the case?
1: It, it was deliberately excluded I didn't know by that, my so. boss George Osborne in my extensive seventeen months as a minister in the Treasury, because uh, he—I suspect he deliberately worried that it would complicate their politics. I don't know, um, but it was, and it, it doesn't. And I—I I, I tried to resist. I said, it doesn't make sense for the reason you just said. And the the second thing which goes with it, which dawned on me, and I, and I, I, you know, housing isn't something I've spent a lot of time thinking about in the past. But when you you look at the kind of basic evidence presented to us early on, it really seems to me like we've had an elastoplast policy thing, as we have on so many other things. But for the past forty odd years, that there's not really been a forty thousand feet policy ever since Maggie Thatcher first decided to it would be cool to have people who live in council houses own them that's been the end of any thought about housing policy yeah. and and we've ended up with all these people this horrific rise in uh private rentals for people that can't really afford to live in a lot of these places not as a deliberate intention but just as a partly as a consequence of that and of course people can't afford to buy their own so it go what what that number does is goes right to the core of actually something way beyond just social housing, uh, uh, fundamentally dealing with Britain's post, post-1960s post housing dilemmas, in my view.
4: At number seven, oh, I do like to be beside the seaside. Now, there's a story behind this, which is it was our seaside episode. Um, it was proposed very strongly by Joel, who came to work on the podcast. It's fair to say, as with all our successful episodes, it was met with a degree of scepticism from me, wasn't it, Jeff? It, it was, but wasn't it but It ju- turned out to be absolutely gangbusters, brilliantly listened to. And got a great reaction. It did. And we spoke to Fernanda Balata, Nick Taylor and Sam Scriven about coastal communities and the New Economic Foundation's plan for a Blue New Deal. It was our most listened to episode of the year, as I said. The House of Lords Committee on Regenerating Seaside Towns, obviously listened, published a report a few weeks after our episode, uh, talking about connectivity, transport, housing and education in seaside towns. Let's hear it.
9: I have to start always when I talk about coastal communities, I have to start by saying that those are amazing communities with, you know, an amazing lifestyle living on the coast. That's why a lot of people retire to the coast. That's why a lot of people want to move to the coast when they do, you know, it's the amazing coastal um, environment. So, you know, there's lots of positives, you know, really strong communities, the ones that I've been meeting for the past few years traveling around the coast, but they do face a lot of challenges. They are complex challenges. So the first thing I'll say is that when looking at coastal communities as one group of communities in the UK, um, you see higher levels of deprivation, unemployment, educational underachievement. Those are economies that have been lacking diversity and dynamism. So many areas, for example, are heavily dependent on tourism, which is a seasonal industry. And that means that they lack resilience, really. So it makes them less able to cope with any shocks to the economy or environmental shocks, like the effects of climate change, for example. And what has been happening across coastal communities is something that has been happening with other communities in the country. Country, which is that they have never really recovered from the loss or decline of traditional industries, such as fishing, shipbuilding, um, or the glory days of British seaside tourism. And what hasn't happened is a coherent plan to reinvent coast economies and to support them in filling those those gaps that have been left for too long there so there's they're really living a cycle of disadvantage that's how i see it areas that are most in need are also the least attractive to investment so there's a challenge there in how do we basically make a change you know how do we transform what's happening right now
7: and a potential answer to that is this Blue New Deal that the New Economics Foundation uh, proposed. Can you talk to us about the deal, or what that proposes and what it would involve?
9: Yeah, so the Blue New Deal is a vision um, and also a plan for the UK coast. So it's first saying that the starting point for, for Blue New Deal should be coastal communities' most unique asset, what sets them apart, the, the reason why we talk about them, which is the coastal marine environment. And so if you're looking at you know, creating a healthier coastal and marine environment and really supporting those resources on which communities heavily depend on, what does that mean then for economic development? How do we think about the activities we're going to be investing in? You know, how we will invest in them differently? And so the Blue New Deal, it's, it's very much about, you know, focusing investment in, in the activities industry, such as, you know, tourism has a potential to be, you know, a good, good positive economic force. It's not doing the job yet, but it could be better. Fisheries could be, we could drive really sustainable fisheries for, for real in the UK. We could invest more in renewable energy. We could invest more in, in other industries as well that, that could be set on the coast. But in order to address the challenges on why certain industries, for example, the digital uh, economy hasn't been thriving on the coast, you know, a place that people would probably like to go and, you know, sit in the sunshine and then go to the office and do very remote work, for example. The reason for that is because of the, the complex challenges. So now I'll go back to um, the more systemic issues for the coast, is that it sits on the periphery of the UK economy. So they lack connectivity. So sometimes it's really hard just for people to relocate to the coast because of transport infrastructure. Broadband connectivity might not be so good. So what the Blue New Deal is saying is that there's all this potential on the coast and communities are doing already and and could be doing a lot more with the right support, but there is a need for a national framework of investment and particular look at the coast. And so that's why we talk about a coastal industrial strategy. But also about, you know, if you're thinking about national infrastructure in the UK, you need to have a coastal element to it. There are particular challenges for the coast. If you're talking about skills, there is a particular uh, need, you know, on the coast in terms of of the the types of skills or reskilling uh, or retraining of people. Just
7: outside the big top five at number six, I fought the law. And I won the art of successful campaigns. Uh, now on this episode, we heard from Gina Martin and Matt Zarb-Cousin about their campaigns on uh, upskirting and fixed odds betting terminals, respectively. We also spoke to the executive director of Citizens UK, Matthew Bolton. And um, for, for me anyway, I thought what was great about this episode was it was it was stuff that had been campaigned for and they'd seen victory. Um, And that that was quite inspiring. And since then, Gina has released a handbook. Uh, If you want to be an activist, it's really good. It's called Be The Change. And let's hear from Gina and Matt. Can you tell us the story behind uh, your your campaign to make Upskirting a criminal offence?
10: Yes. So that was July 2017. Um, I was at British Summertime Festival in Hyde Park. And I was waiting for a band to come on stage in the middle of the day. um, Really hot day and i was with my sister and a group of guys were sort of hitting on me and i said no probably seventy thousand times until you can kind of they were getting angry i guess at that point and um one of them took photos with his iphone between my legs of my crotch up my skirt and i didn't see him do that but i did see the other guys on the phone looking at the photos um so i grabbed the phone off one of the guys and held it up got into like a bit of a scuffle with him and then people in the crowd pushed him and helped me run through the crowd it was like sixty thousand people crowd so it was huge and I ran through the crowd got to security they called the police and the police came and they were really nice but they just deleted the picture and were like don't worry it's gone and they were like there's nothing we can do sorry carry on with your night and then i kind of looked into the law and found out that it'd been a sexual offense in scotland for 10 years and various other countries around the world but that we hadn't done that here um and that's when i launched it online
7: so so how do you how did you go from thinking this this is ridiculous that there's no law against this in England and Wales to thinking i i should be the person to make a difference <laughs> with this
10: there was a bit of a, a gap there i think at, be- at the beginning i was very angry about it i think it was like the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of growing up as a young lady you deal with a lot of stuff you don't want to and you get on with it for no reason i don't know why we do um and i went on social media and i kind of posted actually Ironically, a picture, a selfie of me and my sister, and they were in the background. I'd found it on my phone and I was like, oh, that's them. So I posted it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, asked everyone to share it. And then Facebook got in touch with me and were like, you have to take that down. That's harassment. And then <laughs> I was harassing. God. So I was like, okay, I think we're done oh here. My God. This is ridiculous. Um, and I started a petition and started a social media campaign that was fairly small. I'd worked in advertising for seven years. Um And I was like, okay, can we get these guys prosecuted? And it kind of started as that for the first week. And then I just had this moment talking to my boyfriend where I was like, why don't I just try and do the bigger fight? Like, I, I never would, but let's just give it a go. Like, I would have never done this before. So why not? Why just fight for my own case? Why not just try and sort this out? you know big time and here we are today <laughs>
7: and you know you've got no history in no. Sort of campaigning Scraped and petition. through school <laughs> right A- right average
10: at school yeah. right? no not at all it's learned on the job really
4: and yeah. how did it go from you know wanting to change the law to changing the law just for our listeners
10: so i the social media campaign happened and i'd done some kind of traditional media some morning shows and debates and stuff and I think I realised that I was doing what I think a lot of us have the propensity to do when we want to change something, where we kind of shout at the power structure and be like, "You're doing something about this? Change it!" It's like, okay, how? I don't know if that's helpful. So, how do I get clever here and strategic? And how do I? Okay, I'm changing legislation here, so I need a law firm, I need a lawyer, I need to really think about a media strategy, like a political strategy. And kind of had that lightbulb moment. And then I went to a whole bunch of law firms and Gibson Dunn, who are a global law firm, um, agreed to back me. Actually, it was one of their young lawyers, Ryan Whelan, who's 29, who's now a great friend. And we got together and planned this strategy and then went to Parliament and started talking to MP small parties and kind of building an army inside the walls really was how we started it.
7: Matt, let's talk to you. Uh, the, the campaign you've been very involved in is stopping fixed odds betting terminals. Uh, can you talk to us about, about how you became involved in that what it was about that that was uh resonated for you personally
11: for me personally it was uh I got addicted to fixed odds betting terminals when I was 16 so I was underage and then over a period of four years I lost in the region of 20,000 pounds I got into a huge amount of huge amount of debt uh came very close to towards the end uh taking my own life uh and you know before I started gambling I didn't know you could get addicted to gambling uh I didn't know you could get I didn't know that certain products brought that out in people um uh, more than more than other products i th- you know I think the whole understanding of gambling addiction my my understanding of it was very limited until I was experiencing it and then um, when when I stopped gambling, I had a, a therapy and uh it took me about six months from then to to completely stop and then finished my degree after that and then uh started campaigning. Just voluntarily uh, met, sort of worked with a group of reformed gambling addicts, and we were s- sort of trying to get something going. Uh, and really, uh, I did dispatches programme in twenty twelve, which was on like Britain's high street gamble. It was like a Michael Crick thing. And then a guy got in touch with me called Derek Webb, who's a philanthropist, and he wanted to campaign against these machines. Uh, he had a background in gambling and understood that gam- some gambling products are more addictive than others and it's about game design and how it interacts with the player and we set up stopped the fobts in early 2013 and uh it's been a real <laughs> testing s- absolute slog
12: reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with
0: ed milliband and jeff lloyd
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
13: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life.
4: At Abbey Road, fixing music education. This was a great treat for us, wasn't it? Oh, it was just Re- fantastic. recording it a it.
7: pilgrimage for me.
4: And, but actually, it wasn't just the being at Abbey Road, was it? It was our 100th episode, and actually it was a brilliant discussion with Deborah Annette from the Incorporated Society of Musicians, <laughs> music teacher Jimmy Rotherham, who got the audience. Yeah, of Reasons Be Cheerful Listening and a bunch of music industry people who are cynical and yet everyone joined in. He was such an inspiration. Katie Tunstall, Giles Martin and Rebecca Lucy Taylor. Since then, the BBC launched a major project on promoting music education in September. Katie Tunstall released a charity Christmas single, a cover of John Lennon's Gimme Some Truth. Let's hear it. Just tell us a little (laughs) bit for those who don't know about how music education works in the UK in terms of what, or other in England, maybe, about in schools? I mean, what's the, what are the sort of requirements in schools? What's compulsory? What's right. optional and so on?
3: Okay, so we've got this thing called the national curriculum, which all state schools theoretically have got to follow. Um, but then the academies were set up, and the academies were told that they didn't have to follow the national curriculum. And what that has meant is that um, 72% of secondary schools are now academies and a huge number of them have basically given up on the national curriculum as have many primary schools. And music is part of the national curriculum. So if your school isn't obliged to follow it because it's now an academy, chances are it may disappear. And what we're seeing at Key Stage 3 as it's called, so it's the 12 to 14 year olds in secondary schools, the majority of those are no longer studying music and 50% of primary schools have lost their music as well. And and that's because of cuts is it? Cuts but mainly I'm afraid it's the driver of the academies and also something called the EBAC which I hope we're going to talk about because um, unfortunately the impact of the EBAC is to remove creative subjects in our in our schools, because there isn't time for them, because everybody's doing triple science, or French, or geography, huge amounts of geography, uh, maths, and English, and all the rest of
4: it. And the EBAC is sort of a, about a core series of subjects which you have to do, and, and basically our subjects aren't in the, aren't Correct, essentially right. not in the core. That's
3: right. So back in 2010, when this idea came out of um, the Conservative government, Um, music was there. In the first interview with Michael Gove, music was there. And then the second interview, it had disappeared. And it's been kind of falling through the cracks ever since, um, which has caused huge trauma in relation to what's going on in our secondary schools. You know, music teachers losing their jobs very often. And the music department is now just one teacher in a secondary school um, and being timetabled off. So definitely within Key Stage 3, you may only get one music lesson every term
7: if you're lucky. And can we talk a little bit about why it's important beyond just creating another Lennon-McCartney and it being important to the economy? That is important. (laughs) But more, more broadly, why is music so important?
3: Well, I think music is part of being a human being. You know, if you go back to the beginning of time, the dawn of time, caveman was in his cave drawing pictures of musical instruments. You know, Um, Plato, you know, the great God Plato talked about music being absolutely fundamental to education. So it was going really well, you know, for a lot of ancient Greeks um, getting, you know, to grips with music. Um, And then we have through recent times, government policy has very much been uh, embarking on this knowledge focused way of schooling, which is basically sticking as much. Education in terms of facts and knowledge and content into into children's heads. Young
4: people doing music GCSEs is, has fallen. It's yeah. pretty. less like something like one in twenty or less.
3: That's right. So since 2014, um, music GCSE has dropped 17 percent. Creative subjects as a whole have dropped 18 percent.
4: And there is just, just before we come to Jimmy, there is a sort of public-private issue here, which is I think. Your State of the Nation report showed that 85% of independent schools say they have a school orchestra, only 32% of state schools. So Absolutely. there's a big divide here. There's
3: a huge divide. So if you think about music as being core to being a human being and you really do want all children to be exposed to it, there's something fundamentally unfair about Eton having 100 visiting music teachers. 100? 100. 100. That's outside of the music department, but 100 visiting music teachers. Teachers, In addition to that school department of music. Right. Whereas in most state schools, there's virtually nothing. So in terms of diversity and what the music industry is going to look like in the future, there is a real problem there that we're just going to have posh kids, nothing against posh kids, but actually talent resides in anybody. It's not about class.
7: All being well at number four, it's who's afraid of GDP shifting to a well-being economy. Uh, this was a great episode. We spoke to Finance Minister Grant Robertson about his first well-being budget in New Zealand. Uh, then we discussed with academic Bronwyn Hayward, uh, the NAF's Annie Quick, and former Cabinet Secretary Gus O'Donnell. I was disappointed to see that the episode that didn't quite—it was bubbling under the top ten—was reasons to be Icelandic. I mean, literally
4: bubbling under, given our experience in the hot geysers. <laughs> are we going to
7: release a video of you never, and me? In a, never,
4: in a, I think. Uh, yeah, it might... Have, no, I think not.
7: <laughs> uh, uh, but, but the reason I mention yeah. that is uh, the Icelandic Prime Minister, friend of the pod, Katrin Jakobsdottir, she introduced a well-being budget earlier, uh, just at the end of last year in December, which was inspired by our episode, I'm sure, uh, as was the Lib Dems adopting a policy of introducing a wellbeing budget. Nicholas Sturgeon gave a TED Talk about focusing on wellbeing. This podcast really had big repercussions. Uh, so let, let's hear Gus O'Donnell talking
4: about it. How is policy made at the moment, just before we get onto how you think the kind of wellbeing approach would, would, would change it?
6: Well, I think when you're looking at policies, you're quite often very focused on the financial. So when you're in Treasury, you're worrying about deficits. So you're looking at financial returns, costs and benefits, and benefits drawn up relatively narrowly. Obviously, over the years, that's got better and better. So, for example, when you're deciding whether to build a road or not, you're looking at trying to value time savings, but also the savings in reduced accidents so lives saved injuries saved but also impact on uh, air pollution co2 all those sorts of things so policy's getting broader and broader i think the the step where we have where we're struggling with is moving that forward saying yes but overall is this leading to an improvement of people's quality of life or their well-being and and that's kind of gets you into the area of how do you actually measure that well-being and you know now we have the office for national statistics looking at different ways of asking people so subjective well-being you know overall how satisfied are you with your life questions like that
4: and why do you think the current approach is sort of insufficient do you think it it, there's quite a lot it doesn't capture for you is that right
6: yes so if you were to take let me take the example of health when we look at whether a new drug should be available on the NHS or not, we know how much the drug costs. And when we value whether we should do it or not, we, we use a quite sophisticated measure called QUALIs, Quality Adjusted Life Years, which says how much does this actually improve a quality life for someone? So if you have a drug that costs $5 million and actually keeps people going for one more week when they're in acute pain anyway that probably wouldn't do it. Whereas you've got drugs which actually give people pretty good quality of life for a time and aren't so expensive, you might want to go with that. Now, that's an example where we're doing what I would call proper well-being analysis. But actually, when we come to thinking about should we keep this hospital open or not, how much should we spend on drugs rather than a behavioral program to prevent uh, things then I think we, it starts to go wrong. If you were using a well-being approach, for example, in health, you'd be much keener on spending money on children's mental health and making sure that mental health people who have mental health illnesses diagnosed were actually treated.
7: How strong is the link between GDP and well-being generally if there's growth and there's more money for public spending? Does, does that tend to mean you're living in a country with higher well-being metrics as well?
6: The relationship isn't one-for-one one by any means. And obviously, uh, part of this is problems with GDP. You know, people using GDP as a, a measure of how well you're doing really do need to kind of grow up, I think, because uh, GDP matters somewhat, but it's a measure of activity, not of how well you're doing. Even Simon Kuznets that put it together many, many decades ago said, don't use this as a measure of success. For example, if all the people doing volunteering in our society suddenly gave up volunteering and started doing illegal drug activity, GDP would go up. So GDP you know, is is a measure of activity. It goes up when you have catastrophes like earthquakes. Uh, it goes up when you use up uh resources like depleting your resources of particular minerals. Um so it it's really not a sensible measure of how well a society is doing. We're into the top three
4: now. At number three drum roll.
0: <sighs> it's like not you. much of drum roll that is a cute it?
4: it's more like two fingers on the desk uh uh it's the kids are all right pupil climate strikes and the green new deal now of course the climate strikes were a big big part of 2019 we went along to the student climate strike in parliament square then spoke to Anne pettifer and zach exley the green new deal has been one of the most talked about political ideas of the year a major part of the u.s democratic primary there's a labor for a green new deal movement here and of course there was the global climate strike which took place in september Let's hear Anne Pettifer. You were there at the creation of the Green New Deal. Tell us sort of what motivated you to come up with the idea and then tell us about the content of it, just to get us so we can sort of, for our listeners, kind of locate what does it actually mean.
14: Right, okay. Well, first of all, the actual Green New Deal word, phrase, I think was uh, thought up by a Friedman uh, the um, journalist on the New York Times, Thomas, before, Friedman, Thomas right. Friedman before 2007. But in 2007, eight, Colin Hines, who had worked at Greenpeace for a long time, convened a group of his pals and I was one of them. And what we were trying to do was to address the triple crunch because this is in the middle of the financial crisis, but it's before layman's crashed. So we, the triple crunch we thought we faced was one financial crisis, two climate crisis and three Uh, peak oil we believed that we were heading towards peak oil well of course that was a wrong story but never mind so the fact is that the things that i wanted to get across was that you cannot do anything about the climate unless you do something about the economy you've got to transform the economy because it's the economy that if you like has created the crisis and and that's very hard for greens to do a greens green campaigners and activists tend to compartmentalize it into this is nature, this is the environment, and leave economics to the chaps in pinstripe suits. And we said, no, 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 we have to integrate these.
7: So, so can you give me the key elements of the New Deal that you came up with?
14: So the first element is to do with the financial system, the financing of it, the taxation associated, sort of the financial side of managing the transformation of the economy away from carbon. The second element was greater energy efficiency and and labour generating activity, which is, you know, substituting carbon, labour for carbon. A big idea at that time was to retrofit every property in Britain.
4: Home insulation,
7: essentially.
14: Home insulation uh, to make our our buildings more energy efficient because so many emissions are linked to our buildings.
7: How closely does the, uh, the, the US... Green New Deal that we're hearing about. How closely does that resemble your proposals?
14: So what happened was a year ago, this about this time last year, Zach Exley turned up on my doorstep and He's gonna be
7: turning up on ours soon too. Yeah, yeah.
14: Right. And he said, um I've come from the US, we've set up something called Justice Democrats, we'd like to get 20 left wing Democrats elected uh, in the midterms. And with um, thinking about the presidential, the 2020 president, but we have no economic strategy. And he'd read my book, and he has a little plug, it's called the production of money. And he loved it. And in particularly, he loves that phrase that Keynes used, which was, we can afford what we can do. In other words, that we'd developed a monetary system to enable us to do what we can do do. And there are limits to what we can do. But they're not limits to the use we can make of our monetary system to enable us to do it. So anyway, he loved that. So we began talking, had some meetings, he went back home. And then one day, he pops up with a Google Doc and says, here's the Green New Deal. And so basically, that they are the same, that the elements are all the same. But they downplay the question of financing at the moment and of the monetary system. And instead, they focus on taxation. I'm I'm unhappy with too much of a focus on taxation, and we can talk about that. And they they also focus on the social justice angle of it.
7: One more place to go until we find out what is the big number one on this year's Reasons to be Cheerful top 10 episodes of the year. What's at number two? Just missing out on the top spot, it is Born Too open brackets, park, close brackets, run, Bond to Park Run, uh, Jeff and Ed's Excellent Adventure. That was one of your suggestions on what the podcast should be called. Was it? Yeah, before Reasons Born to... Be run. Ch- no, uh, Jeff and Ed's Excellent Adventure. Oh, uh, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. It, that's, that's true. And, and it was uh, one of our on-location episodes. Yes. We went to Finsbury Park in It's a bit park of a cheat, this one, because it
4: was recorded before. It was recorded in 2016
7: 20- it 18. was, but it was still an episode that Broadcast. came out in January of 2019. We went inquiry. to Finsbury Park, yeah. I put on my PE kit. Yeah. Uh, we spoke to Chief Exec Nick yeah. Pearson, author Bella Mackey. And and it was quite incredible because yeah. it was the next week they had how many more people lots, turn up? lots. They celebrated their 15th birthday in June. Park Run, generally, not just yeah. the uh, Finsbury
4: Park one. It is a phenomenon and, and something. And the well, Doncaster Park Run in Cusworth Hall is brilliant, as is the one in Sandal Park. So, it's, Park Run is. will be coming back it's to highlight. It's a highlight of my 2019. So, you've said. So, uh, let's hear from Nick.
15: The way we would describe Park Run is probably it's a series of free weekly. Um, community-led socially focused physical activity events uh started in uh southwest London in 2004 uh, one group of 13 individuals running around the park um uh persuaded to uh turn up by the founder paul Sinton hewitt to begin with it was clearly a running event put on for a group of paul's running friends and and we now Move away from calling it a running event because it's whatever you want it to be and it's there for people to run, people to jog, people to walk, people to volunteer and all of those things are equally um, important to us. So from 2004, the one event, we're now at um, around about 1500 events. Globally, every single week uh, in 20 different countries, we have uh, just over 5 million registered park runners. 5 million! Um, and three oh, million in the uk is three that right? million in the uk yeah of which around about uh we just had our record actually end of november we had our biggest ever number which was two hundred and ninety-two thousand people participated over the course of one weekend either running walking jogging or volunteering and january is a massive month for us is, is it
7: constantly growing
15: yeah, yeah 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 so it's it's the overall global growth is probably 25 percent uh and, and just
4: to be clear, there's hundred and fifty thousand
15: people do it every week every in the UK. Single week. Yeah, yeah. Every single week. Yeah, every single week. I mean that's kind of a lot. It's unbelievable. Um but that number is also rapidly uh is is rapidly growing. So that would have been, you know, seventy five thousand, you know, two two and a half years ago. So um where, where we see it going is we see um we see it not being that that far away that we reach a million people a week that are participating. The scale, the massive scale of numbers is not really what our objective is. We feel that's uh, uh, almost an inevitable consequence of, of where we're at.
7: What do you think it is about Park Run that pe- people are latching onto? Why, why do people love it? Why is it such a success? I think there's, there's
15: hundreds and hundreds of different reasons for that. Um, I think that there is something about its egalitarian nature that was set out from day one and and is represented by the character and values and ethics of the founder. And that's that everybody's equal and everybody should be treated equal. And it's free. And it's free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but... But the traditional running event will create a hierarchy based around performance, and we actually, you know, challenge that and an and, and attempt to, from day one, disrupt that. So even though day one with 13 people, was unquestionably a running event, Paul gave out two prizes, one for first place and one for last place. And that represented, even at that moment in time, although he had no idea what it was going to go on to become, it represented the fact that to Paul they were of equal value and everybody was of equal value. And actually, um, operating in uh, a world or an environment where you can be yourself and and be made to feel of equal value, I think is quite a, a unique Um, A unique thing. And so that definitely, definitely, definitely resonates. Um, I think that there is a natural sense of community that, that exists in people's DNA. Yeah. And, and as our lives get busier and that gets stripped out of our choices when you when you give people the opportunity to experience community again i think that they really enjoy it and so you know we see that we see that if there's a royal wedding people can't wait to get the 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 tables out and celebrate it because it almost harks back to the time where those kind of things happened all the time and i think community is uh a, a basic human requirement, which is why it crosses
7: cultures.
4: Now, the number one. I thought I'd get some acknowledgement reasons- of my little
7: rendition of the sign of it the swinging excellent. symbols
4: then. The number one reasons to be cheerful episode of 2019 is Empire State of Mind overhauling the history we teach and to be honest I actually I don't know what you think but I think this was a pretty clear winner yeah uh, for for 2019 it it was a brilliant show. It was live at the Clapham Ground with Gaminda Bambra and Jason Todd about British Empire and failure to teach about it in schools and the history of empire. Loads of listeners got in touch, sharing their experiences of history education and how little they felt they knew. One university lecturer has put our episode on their reading list for undergraduate history students. Though I can't now find who it was. No, Uh, I wasn't meant to read that bit out. Labour pledged to add the teaching of history of empire to the curriculum in their election manifesto. I mean, honestly, and, you know, I think both Jason and particularly Gaminda were were brilliant guests. And we're going to hear a clip of Gaminda. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the map. The British Empire in 1921. Now, Gaminda, you are going to tell us this is like the basic foundational moment of the discussion where we all get taught if we weren't taught in school What Britain was basically in 1921?
12: Well, I guess the first thing to understand is that Britain doesn't become all the bits in red all at the same time. And so before you have Britain, you have the kingdoms of England and Scotland. They enter into union in 1707 through an act of union both England and Scotland have colonies prior to that act, including their close neighbors, as well as colonies further afield in Virginia and the West Indies. So at the very moment that Britain comes into being, it already has colonies, it already has imperial intentions, and so it comes into being as an empire. And then over the next two centuries, it goes round invading and colonizing much of the rest of the world. So that by the height of empire, by 1921, that's pretty much the peak of empire britain has Peak. control over <laughs> one but not in that sense <laughs> one quarter of the earth's land territory it governs over one-fifth of the world's population including extracting taxes from that population and it governs over one in two of the world's muslims by 1921
4: and britain got very very rich off, that, yeah, off the back i was of about this. to say that yeah, yeah. yeah.
12: Yes there was a report written in 1885. Um, you were looking you
4: told us before you were looking at the national accounts from 1885 yes. the other night which I think just, is, just, just that, that shows what a serious person you are. Uh,
12: I know. There was a report titled The General Statistics of British Empire. Yeah. And in there, Richard Temple, who was the Secretary of the Royal Statistical Society, he outlined the fact that in 1885, Britain had a national income of 203 million pounds. Of that, 84 million pounds came from taxes and resources in the UK. 79 million came from taxes and resources from India and 40 million came from the rest of the colonies. So the national wealth that's under the control of the national government in Westminster, more than half of that wealth comes from the colonies. So every institution in Britain is funded by the wealth of empire.
4: Okay, and then the other thing that is incredibly fascinating is this bailout thing. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the bailout because you think the bailout of 2008 was expensive and like a big deal. Tell us about the bailout of the slave owners.
12: So in, I mean, one of the things often when we're talking about empire, we talk about slavery. And one of the first things then is how Britain abolished the slave trade. And it's like, yes, Britain did abolish the slave trade, but after about 200 years of profiting from it. And the profits from the slave trade didn't end with the end of the slave trade, because the only reason slave owners in Britain agreed to the abolition of the slave trade was because they would be compensated. So. Just to underline, it wasn't the people who had been enslaved who were compensated for their loss of liberty. It was the British slave owners, people who owned other people who were compensated. And they were compensated to a tune of £20 million in 1833. That's the equivalent of £17 billion today, which, to put it another way, is 40% of GDP.
4: 40% of GDP then? 40%
12: of GDP then. then
4: Was 20 million. Was
12: 20 million.
4: So 40% of our total national income went in compensation.
12: And there wasn't enough money in the country to pay people, and so what the government did was raise bonds. So those bonds were raised, the slave owners were paid, and we, that is British taxpayers, both in Britain and the colonies, only finished off paying that bond in 2015. So if you've paid tax prior to 2015, you have paid compensation to people who owned other people.
4: And that was still being paid. Mm. So it was being paid to the, to the ancestors
12: to the of the. No, David the money. Oh, there was a borrower, the of the money course. Money was the paid. So money was borrowed yeah, by yeah. the government. So we've been paying through our taxes to the paying back of that bond and the interest on that bond.
7: And that was our top 10 podcasts of the year. Not half. Thank you so much for listening to us in 2019. We hope you'll stick with us in 2020. We will be back. We will. We're going to be doing more live shows, Cheerful Book Club. Yes. We'll be uh, properly birthing that in a few weeks' time, so lots to look forward to. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Well, as every week, but, but you know, even more so, because it's the last one of the year, we want to thank Emma Corsham, who produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance, and the artwork was wasn't not <laughs>
4: produced. It was actually produced partly in 2019 by Emily Power. Yes, yes. It's, to be fair to her. To, to be fair to Emily. So, so I we, think she like, deserves a kind of one, the artwork was produced by Emily Power, and the artwork was not produced by Emily, Emily Power. Power. She's like Schrodinger's Emily Power. yeah, exactly. Yeah. but but it was produced by Henry Cole. He's been an old acquaintance.
7: He's been forgot, <laughs> and these have been <laughs> reasons to be cheerful.
1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
13: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley.